Hey, good morning, everyone, and happy Memorial Day weekend. You know, on that note of being Memorial Day, I'd like to start today. Let's just pray, okay? Pray for those um, families who are affected by people who put their life in harm's way and those who have given it. You know what I mean? Let's pray. Lord, today we do just want to pause and remember people who are willing to lay down their life for another. People who, even today, are still willing to put themselves in harm's way. People who risk that, that sacrifice beyond measure out of love for others in this world. For those who are in harm's way now, we pray your protection upon them. And for the families of those who are left behind in the wake of others who have paid the price, your comfort, your peace, your presence and indelible hope. Lord, for you and to you, who is the ultimate example, you who laid down your life for each of us, may it mark us in our souls, may, it, may we follow your example. May we love as you loved. Glory and honor above all things be to you today. God, this we pray. Amen. I'd like you to open a Bible. You'll find them in a chair in front of you. I'd like you to go to Proverbs chapter 1 with me. These past several weeks, we've been going through what is called ancient wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs being one example of it. And in Proverbs chapter 1, we get a snapshot of a passage that describes kind of what this is all about, all right? And it's a passage that we've been really encouraging people to try to memorize and, and kind of ingest personally. And I'd like you to turn there with me today, and I'd actually like you to read along. There's about five verses that leads this. I mean, the first verse we read that it's the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. But here in 2 through 7, Read it along with me. And if your version happens to differ from mine, just overpower me, okay? Let's read it. For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise. Yeah, you got it. You had it. Trust yourselves. Trust yourselves. Fools despise wisdom. And discipline. That, that idea here today is something that I think is sorely missing in the topic that I want to talk to you about. And I think we need to start by saying the purpose of this topic we're jumping into today is truly to gain wisdom and prudence and a better grasp on living out what is right and just and fair and to find a healthy, healthy dose of the fear of the Lord in the midst of it because it's something that's often 
missing. See, since September, we've been going through these what we call how-tos of the Christian faith. Kind of how-tos, how do I follow Jesus today? You follow? Like, don't talk to me just about the theory. How do I actually do it in the trench? And a lot of these topics that we've been looking at this past year have been generated more or less by me and the staff thinking about what we perceived is needing to be hit. But a lot actually came from you. Last week, we talked about loneliness and how to deal with it. And this week is another that's come up from many of you asking how to figure out Jesus' way in its midst. Here it is. How's a Christian supposed to deal with politics? Should churches be political? And when I'm at the family party and my crazy uncle goes on his tirade, how do I handle that? How do I handle it when he's just flat out wrong? How do I handle it when he's vocal and belligerent, but right? What about social media and that toxic wasteland of political intercourse, right? How do I handle it there? A lot of us are struggling with this. A lot of us are asking the question, what is the role of a Christ follower in the political sphere? What am I supposed to be doing and how, on top of that, does God want me to go about doing it? And what makes this so difficult, it is such an emotionally overcharged topic. There's a reason people say you should never talk about religion or politics, right? Is because trying to have a sane conversation feels sometimes next to impossible. And because of that, I find that people tend to run to all these different extremes. I see and talk to many people who aren't Christ followers, who don't call themselves Christian. And on top of that, there's certain things I tend to perceive from those who aren't Christian who speak, where, where it seems to many of them, they think that all Christianity is, is some kind of foil or tool for a political agenda which it's not, but I meet some Christians who just don't seem to be able to unmesh their faith from a particular political platform or party. And I find some who make the mistake of using Jesus as a means to their political end but I see an equal and opposite mistake of many others trying to stay as apolitical as possible and run for the hills as far as they can from any kind of engagement. Keeping faith is something personal and private, which is just tucked in here for me. And it creates all kinds of confusion. You've been there, haven't you? How, God, do you want me to navigate this emotionally overcharged messy terrain. Christians throughout history have navigated this in different ways. And it's important for me to tell you up front that there are, 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 are different and vying perspectives on the best way to follow Jesus in this world depending on the believer you will meet. I don't have time 
to get into all those options. There are so many complexities and nuances that have to be brought out when we start talking about the particulars of politics in this nation or any, for that matter. We don't have time to unpack and delve through all of those in the meaningful way that they deserve. What I want to do today is something a little bit different. I want to speak about it more, can I use the word transcendently? More from a 20 or 30,000 foot elevation. How do I kind of think about the subject from a big picture? And how does that inform my engagement with any particular political issue or avenue of the day? I want to talk to you about it in general, in other words. And maybe leave you just with a few specifics to deal with that weird uncle or Facebook friend or conversation you might happen to find yourself in. So let me start here and just kind of lay my cards on the table. Generally speaking, I believe Christians should be political. That's a strange thing for me to say because that wasn't a position I held for a long time. Actually, for a long time, I was more of those, just keep it over there, the Amish and I could be like that. You know what I mean? But the more I study the word of God and wrestle with some of the issues that it raises, the more I've come to believe that I think Christians need to be political. If you understand what I mean by this word. So I'm going to do a brief exercise with you today. I'm going to show you four sentences. Four sentences that hopefully bring to light what I'm getting at here. Let me share them with you. I don't get involved in politics. Politics have absolutely no place in the church. Politics can get really ugly. When it starts to get political, I back away and find some place else. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this, but I bet there's a lot of you here who, like me, really resonate with these statements. All of these are things that I, I would have easily said at a different time in my life, and I bet there's a lot of you here today who are like, amen, brother, preach it. If you don't believe me, let me put it in a different context, and let's just talk about politics and church. Who here likes church politics? Give me national any day, all right? How many people come to a church and go, I don't get involved in the political stuff? Politics have no place in the church. Man, the politics, church politics are so ugly, that's why I'm here and not over there. Because when it starts to get political, or I start to get too close, I go someplace else. Amen? Preach it, brother. Now, what I want to do for those of you who maybe come from that place like I do, I want to use another word in place of politics. I'm going to show you the exact same four sentences, but I'm going to substitute the word politics with another word, a word that I think is synonymous, and yet at the same time, a word that I think is a little bit more gospel-laden. Here it is. 
It starts to read a little bit differently, doesn't it? Does it put like a whole different spin on the entire topic for you? Because guys, I want to submit to you this. Politics is about relationships. Period. All politics is is learning how to live in relation to other people in what is hopefully an organized kind of way. To be sure, when we try to live in relation to other people, it gets messy. And to be sure, when we try to live in relation to other people, it gets hard. And it's why I think so many of us would rather run away and distance ourselves from that hard, messy, relational work. And to build off what we were talking about last week, it's why I think many of us find ourselves more often than not in a place of loneliness. To be sure, it gets abused, manipulated, and all kinds of abuses find their way into relationships. And so politics, to be sure. And that's bad. But you know what? I think it's worse to totally disengage. And I think it's worse because I think at some level it's disobedient to God. Because God, I believe, wants us in relationships with other people. And that includes people that we don't agree with. That includes people with different values and ways of seeing the world and perspectives. That includes people that we don't like. How does Jesus put it? When you go to the marketplace, do you just greet your brother? Do you just love those who love you? Doesn't Jesus say even the pagans do that? No, but love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God calls us to be interconnected and into relationship with people that we don't like and agree with. Welcome to what I am talking about as politics, because all politics is, is entering into relationships, particularly with people that we don't agree with, trying to figure out how to do life together. God calls us to be in that, and God calls us to do more than being a God calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. For many of us, especially in conservative avenues of Christianity, I think that gets so individualized. It comes down to how do I treat you? And oh man, is that a huge part of it. But it's broader than that. It's not just how do I treat you individually, but how do I seek to bring goodness and blessing to people in general? Here's how Isaiah puts it. I love this and I hate it at the same time. Learn to do right. Like, learn it, he says. It doesn't come naturally. Learn how to do it. Work through it. Do the hard work. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Individually, 
you bet. But also working for that greater good and how it affects people generally. Two, are you with me? And that includes politics. I want to show you three people today from more recent history. Three believers and leaders in the faith that I respect dearly who were very political. Here's the first. His name is William Wilberforce. Ever hear of him? Member of the British Parliament. You can see the dates right up there. Now, Wilberforce, like many in his day and age, was brought up in what was conceived a, quote, Christian society in the Church of England, baptized as a baby, and, and, and somehow brought up in the, the church in some kind of connection, be it loose or tight, I don't know. But it wasn't until later in his life that as he recounts his journey that he says he finally came to Christ. It was later in his life that he came to put his faith in Christ and came to pledge allegiance to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. It was a day and age in the British Empire when slavery was still a reality. It was certainly a reality here in the United States, but it was also a reality in the British Empire through all their existing colonies around the world, and this is right before the height of the British Empire as we've heard of it. And slavery was rampant. It was a day and age when people believed it was important to keep your faith private and personal. Thomas Jefferson, for an example, was a proponent of that on this side of the sea. That faith was something you just kept to yourself because after all, Europe had been through their 30 years war. And they didn't need that kind of hostility and conflict again. But when this man came to faith in Christ and saw the way that people were being mistreated, he couldn't live with it. He couldn't live with it because he believed that the mandate of Christ was not just to have a nice quiet time that feels good in my heart, but to follow the way of Jesus and love your neighbor as yourself by any means possible. I love this quote, if you haven't read it already. And what Wilberforce did is put himself on a crusade for the better part of his life and certainly all of his career, advocating, fighting, debating, wrestling, petitioning, and pleading for the end of slavery in the British Empire. You could see that he died in 1833. I forget the exact count on this, but it was less than a week. It was just days after Parliament finally ratified the bill that slavery would be abolished in the British Empire that Wilberforce died. Wilberforce was political. Let me show you a Lutheran pastor. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, killer name. Lutheran pastor in Germany. And if you're looking at the dates on the wall, you know what was going on in Germany at the time 
He was a pastor. He was part of the Nazi resistance. He actually fled Germany to the States. After Hitler came to power and after he saw the handwriting on the wall and how things were going to turn, he's like, I've got to get out of here now. And he came to the States on an educational visa and did postgraduate work. Union Seminary, I believe. It was there. While he was studying this thing deeply, that he couldn't escape the conviction that God calls believers to love their neighbors as themselves by any means possible. He began to become convicted that as a pastor, he had left the people of Germany who needed to hear a countervailing voice who were left alone to their own spiritual devices while he was hiding in safety. And he came to believe this, that suffering was not a plague, but suffering for one's faith was a privilege. And that the way of Jesus truly means embracing a cross, not running from it. What does he say? To endure the cross is not tragedy. It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus. And so he decided to go back into Germany, right on the cusp of war, knowing exactly what he was stepping into. He was part of an underground movement, an illegal movement of churches in Germany at the time. Those who would not conform to the state standards. He became a sort of prophet voice in the wilderness, if I can put it that way, speaking out against the atrocities of Hitler and speaking the message of Christ and distinction to it. He even got involved in a plan to assassinate Hitler. Rock on, maybe. Look, Nazis are smart. They were watching him. They were tailing him. He was under investigation. And to a degree, he knew it, but he didn't stop anyway. He was finally arrested. He was brought before the SS. He was locked up and finally ended up in a concentration camp. It was how the last year and a half of his life was spent. If you know your history, that date 1945 should be significant. It was 11 days before Berlin was liberated by Allied forces that Bonhoeffer was executed for preaching the way of Christ and what he believed in. Whatever you think about his methods, whatever you think about the man, Bonhoeffer was political. This gentleman you know well. Surprisingly, what most don't realize that I've met today is that he was a Christian, a pastor, and that it was his faith that drove his approach to loving one's neighbor as oneself, not just in theory, but in how he did it. 
I love this quote, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. His words, but do you know where he got the idea from? Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read his writings and listen to his sermons and and speeches, you'll see undergirding it is this, this Christian mandate to do whatever possible to stand up for others and show them love, those who, well, how does Proverbs put it? Are not being treated justly, rightly, and fairly. MLK was political. All took their faith seriously. Seriously enough to say that when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he meant it. He meant it. And all of them were willing to give their lives for that call. Yeah, I said it and I'll say it again. I think Christians need to be political. I think it is an expression of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, some of you may object, but wait a minute, isn't it illegal for a church to be political? And the simple answer is this, no, it's not. At least not here in the United States. I'll tell you what is illegal if you kind of dig this kind of stuff and are into it. It is illegal for a nonprofit corporation of which a church is in the United States to advocate for a particular political candidate. And even then, if you do it, you just lose your nonprofit status. But can I ask you this? Do you think this man here went in going, is it legal? Do you think this man here went in going, is it legal? See, the Bible says clearly that the people who rule and govern have been given that privilege by God and we are to respect them and honor them and obey them. But there does come times when obedience to the state is in such contradistinction to obedience to Christ that obedience to Christ must be chosen no matter what the cost. When Peter and the apostles, remember them, were on trial, you can read this in Acts, on trial and being commanded to be silent and speak no more about this, this Jesus. Look at what they had to say. We must obey God rather than men. I want to speak into one more thing, another misconception, just so this is clear. I am in no way advocating, nor do I think that Christians or the church should be advocating a particular political party or person. Because political parties and politicians are not our saviors and not our shining lights. I got to break it to you. God is not a Republican. And to the others of you who are smirking right now, I got to break it to you. God is not a Democrat. 
I actually didn't mean to look right and then look left on that, but <laughs> that kind of worked. And I got to break it to you, God isn't a libertarian, a green party, a Tory, a Whig, or a Bath either. These are things of men, not of God. I got to break this to you as well. God loves President Trump, even if you don't. God loves President Obama, even if you don't. And God loves the leaders of Iran and Russia and every other country that our country loves to hate too. See, the church was never called to be allied to a political party. Anytime you put an adjective before the word Christian, you've already missed the boat. Well, I'm a conservative Christian. I'm a liberal Christian. No, you're a Christian. Called to be separate and yet a voice into either. Because the role of the church has always been to be a prophet. To whoever the leader might be, whatever the party affiliation might be, whatever the platform might be, being that voice that is willing to speak out even if it is the lone voice in the wilderness, even if it lands you in jail without a head. Preaching the word of God and speaking what he says is good and right and just and fair to whoever the leader might be and to no matter whether you like him or not, which means praying for them. Praying for them and encouraging them to do what is right. It means willingness to risk. Willingness to speak, to put yourself out there. Yes, to love one's neighbor as yourself is ultimately going to include politics. But, back to the question. How do you actually navigate it? Because all of this is kind of foundational stuff that has to be laid out to stand upon, but at some point you need more than theory. How do I actually talk to my crazy uncle who's loud and belligerent and insulting? How do I navigate it when it gets uncomfortable at some social gathering and it comes up? How do I interface on social media? There is so much that can be said to which we only have the briefest of time, but I want to touch on three things very quickly. Three kind of guiding principles that I think are true of Christ no matter what the policy or situation. I'm gonna skip this next slide and go to this. The first, know that you'll be hated. Just accept it. It is an inevitability. If you are taking the prophetic voice and trying to speak God's wisdom, God's truth, God's understanding into a situation, don't expect people to get it. Don't expect people to understand it. You will be hated. It's Jesus' words, not mine. Look what he says, if you're of this world, the world would love you, it loves its own. But you're not of this world. I chose you out of this world. Because of this, the world hates you. 
embrace martyrdom. It has always been the way. How does Jesus put it? It's like in this beatitude, remember these, the beatitudes, we love them in wall art, but we hate them in practice. How's the last one go? Blessed are you when men insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. Who wants to be blessed here today? It's like, Jesus, not like that. Now, blessed are you. He goes like this, rejoice and be glad. You kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For I tell you, in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Number two I want to show you is this. It involves like kind of when to speak. Check out these two proverbs that are back to back. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. Check out the exact next proverb. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Have you ever had the moment where it's like, God, just tell me what to do? And then you like come to this, and you're like, are you kidding me? So many of us, I think, find ourselves in that position going, do I speak up? Do I stay silent? Do I engage and only risk further fueling some flame? Or do I withdraw but let... Let me give you just some personal insights I've found in trying to contextualize these two proverbs. Some of you here are fighters. By nature, you are someone who loves to get in there and scrap and fight. And oh, is that a blessing? Oh, is that a gift? God needs people like you who are willing to engage, who aren't afraid, and who don't acquiesce too easily. I want to speak to you for just a moment. Because if you find yourself in one of these situations going, as a Christian, what am I supposed to do? Ask yourself the basic question. What do I love more, this person I'm talking to or winning? And if your answer is, my goal here is to win, consider maybe whether you need to bite your lips. Because love in Christ's kingdom drives all. And there's some of you here who love the word love. You paint it around and throw it around and use it as your ever-ready excuse to never engage. Because at the core what fundamentally drives you is people getting along. And if I'm speaking to you today, oh, oh, is that a gift? Oh, is that a gift? And oh, does God need people like you in this world? How does Jesus put it in the beatitude? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers 
So when you're in that situation, maybe what you need to ask yourself is this. Is my failure to engage, to step out, to confront, motivated more by love of this person or motivated more by not upsetting the fragile peace? And if it's the latter, maybe what God is calling you to do is put yourself on the line to speak, to engage, humbly, with grace and respect, as God always commands, and of course, with listening. Here's one more thing that just kind of struck me. And it kind of piggybacks off of something that Jesus talked about in Matthew 23. You know, God is more concerned with what you do than what you stand for. There's a lot of us who love to stand triumphantly for all kinds of causes that in their own right are good. But at the end of the day, God is going to ask, what did you do? Do not do what they do. Jesus said, these people who do not practice what they preach, they tie up heavy loads and make policies and march for justice and put burdens on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to do anything about what they stand for. Everything they do is done for men to see. Don't be like that. I think of the early church that had no political outlet, no political platform, no voice. It didn't stop them. I think of in the first centuries of the church when it was still illegal to be Christian. And the life of the unborn and the newly born was just as much an issue as it was then as it was today. Unwanted pregnancy is not a new thing. I've always been struck by what the early believers did. They simply went out to the garbage heaps to collect unwanted kids. See, in that day, abortion existed too, but only the very wealthy could afford it. The more natural way to deal with an unwanted pregnancy was simply to just deliver and then dump your kid. It was known and it was widespread. And these people who had next to nothing, these believers in Christ would simply go out to the garbage heaps and say, I love this kid. I think of the Middle Ages when only the very wealthy could afford medical treatment. You basically had your own personal doctor, and man, only the richest of the rich could have one. And early believers saw the suffering of so many, and they invented something, you've heard of it, it's called a hospital. Places where anyone could come. The poor and the sick could gather, and the Christians, to the best of their abilities, would minister 
to them. I think of the Crusades and all the political mess of what happened over those couple hundreds of years where Christians who would often get caught in the crossfires, Christians who were native to the Middle East, because they were Christian, would be abducted and sold into slavery. And Christians who were outside of that danger circle would get word and would raise every cent they could and come up with every spare dollar they could to go into harm's way to buy those Christians from the slave markets and set them free. Can I ask what's more powerful to you? Those three examples I gave are holding a sign. Those three examples I gave are winning the, the argument or the fight. There is a place for speaking, but never in lieu of doing. Because ultimately, when it comes to loving your neighbor as yourself, what you do more clearly marks Jesus' way. So this today was just trying to scratch the surface on what is a highly complex topic that needs to be nuanced in all sorts of ways. My hope is simply this that you will take very seriously Jesus' call to love your neighbor as yourself and to embrace it in every way, to make it more than an idea, but something that drives you and as it drives you to go about doing it Jesus' way.